Good morning, everybody. I feel like with some of these bumpers, you'd be like that movie guy, like in a world this spring coming to a theater near you. I feel like we should have a voice like that under our bumpers. Hey, we're going to be starting a new series today in the book of Habakkuk. Uh, It's a hard to say word, okay? Habakkuk. Some people say Habakkuk. We're saying Habakkuk. Uh, It is a great book. The reason that we picked this book uh, is because it's one of the more unique books in all of Scripture. Uh, It uh, is a short three-chapter book solely based on a conversation between a man named Habakkuk and God. It's, it's an actual conversation where a man talks to God and God responds. And it's not so much Habakkuk talking to God as it is Habakkuk complaining to God or lamenting to God about the circumstances that surround his life and the circumstances that result, result, uh, revolve around the lives of those in Israel. And so I think what is so great about this book is that all of us probably at one time or another have thought, man, it would be nice if I could have a nice conversation with God in the presence where I could lay out my grievances and my concerns and I could hear an answer. And so I think we might be able to see some of ourselves in this man. It's a really great story of a man who's conflicted about his trust in God. He is doubting the wisdom of God. He doubts the the, the goodness of God. He never doubts God's existence. And in the end, we see Habakkuk walking away, reassured about the nature and the character of God and regaining his trust in him. So I think this is going to be a great few weeks for us here at church. We're looking forward to, to bringing you stuff uh, in this uh, minor prophet book. So let's just get started today with week one. Uh, it, there was a, a man who was a big city man. He lived in the big city and he moved to a small village in Maine. He was taken back by some of the practices of some of the owners in this small town. He went to go rent a rototiller to use in his garden. He called the owner, he went over there to rent it, the owner showed him how to work it, and then began to tell him how he was going to charge him for that rototiller. The man said, I'm not going to charge you based upon how long you have it out, not from here to wherever. I'm going to actually charge you just on how long you use it. And the man looked at him and he was like, what? He looked at the rototiller, looked for like some sort of meter or gauge on it, didn't find it, and he said, well, well, how are you going to know how long I used it for? And perplexed, this small village businessman looked at him and said, well, You'll just tell me, won't you? This man had grown up in the big city in a dog-eat-dog culture for so long he was conditioned to be calloused and calculating and cunning. And every opportunity that came his way, he looked to exploit those things. And the honesty in this small business, this small town businessman in Maine began to unravel that as he saw within this man, a man that inherently saw the good in people, and had a rock-bottom value of honesty. It began to unravel anything. So what would you do? Would you be honest about how long you used that rototiller? Might you see it as an opportunity to exploit a little bit, maybe work some things for your good? How would you do that? In a publication by Moody Institute, they surveyed and polled 5,000 students. And in that poll, of those 5,000 students, 46% of them said that they would cheat on an important exam. 36% of them said that they would not tell the truth or cover up if a friend had vandalized something. And only 24% of them said that they would tell the truth in any of those circumstances. 5% of them said that they would take money from their parents if given an opportunity. Now, maybe that poll surprises you. Maybe you're just like, ah, kids today! 
validates all this generation today. But it might surprise you to know that that poll was taken in 1990. That's 27 years ago. And that was true of students back then. Maybe you're just caught up on the fact that 1990 was 27 years ago. Like, just like yesterday, just jamming to Wilson Phillips. Someday somebody's gonna... Not anymore. 27 years ago. And here's the thing. I think that that poll speaks to the reality that exists in our lives, that we're probably not as truthful as maybe we would like to think that we are. And today, I want to expand upon that topic of honesty, not in some topical-driven message about the virtues of honesty in our actions, but a biblically-directed message using the example of Habakkuk to, uh, to, to help us to fully understand the intersection of honesty and God, the intersection of honesty and our faith. And so if I asked you a question today, are you honest with God, how would you answer? Yes, no, maybe. I've never had somebody ask me that question before, Steve. It's freaking me out. How honest are you in your interactions with God? Does he know you? Does he know your heart? Do you communicate to him in a way that is honest and real? I wonder for how many of us it is the truth that we struggle with really being expressive to God about our anger, about our stresses, about our desires, about our doubts, about our fears, about our struggles, because we often view God as somebody that's way up there that's too big, a God that maybe uh, is too holy and maybe even unconcerned about our plights in life. Maybe you have been brought up in a way that you have only been taught that you talk to God in a certain way. And by no means should you ever air out your grievances, your concerns, or even your anger to God. But I think that that's a mistake. I think that's a mistake because the most satisfying relationships that you have are the ones in which the most depth have been created in. Those are not, are they not? Our most satisfying relationships are the ones that we can create the most depth in. The ones that you can be honest, good or bad, and because you know that relationship, you know that that person's not going anywhere. You can be open, good or bad, and trust that that person's not going anywhere because of the depth of that relationship. And so I think one of the things that we have to understand today is that the fact that you and I were created in the image of God. And because we are created in the image of God, we are created to be in a personal, intimate, honest, and open relationship with him. In the word, it records that our father knew you in your mother's womb, that he knows the number of hairs on your head. And those things were recorded in there to remind you that we don't just serve a God who is big and holy and just one that is to be revered, but also to remind us of a savior and a God that is absolutely personal and near. They're there to remind us of those things. The prophet Habakkuk demonstrates this value of a deep, profound relationship with God. Habakkuk is God's directed prophet on earth whose life is contained in just a short three-chapter book at the end of the Old Testament. Being a prophet, Habakkuk would have dealt directly with God. There would have been a direct communication with God and Habakkuk in presence and in words. God would tell Habakkuk what he wanted his people to know. And so if you're dealing directly with God, note that that probably means that there's a profound and deep relationship that exists there with a creator. And so note that and note how Habakkuk responds, presents himself, and talks to God because I think it gives us a great picture of what a deep and profound relationship with the Savior, with our God, looks like. So let's go ahead and just jump into Habakkuk. We're going to read Habakkuk 1 today, verses 1 through 4. 
the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, now oracle has been translated from the word burden. So this is a burden. The oracle, the burden that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous So justice goes forth perverted. And maybe this lament rings something true to your soul. Maybe you have talked to God in this way. Lord, why did you do this? Why did you take this away from me? Why did you take them away from me? What are you doing here? And this is exactly what Habakkuk is doing. He's laying his heart out to the Father. And so let's bring in some background to fully understand what it is that Habakkuk is ranting about in this book. This book was written somewhere between 615 B.C. and 580 B.C. If you remember B.C., it counts down. So 610 to 580 B.C., let's bring a little history of what's happening in that time so we can understand where we find Habakkuk. So as we know, we have a king named David that is before this happening, uh, this happenings. David is somebody that God says is a man after my own heart. David dies. His son Solomon is placed on the throne, and Israel flourishes financially and in stature. But after Solomon dies, Israel begins to disintegrate from the inside out as Solomon's sons begin debating amongst each other. There's infighting, and before long, the country of Israel separates into two different kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom, which is Israel, that's made up of two of the 12 tribes, and you have the southern kingdom, which is Judah, that is made up of the rest of the tribes, the other 10 tribes. And it doesn't take long before the northern kingdom, Israel, is conquered by the Babylonians, and the Israelites in that kingdom are led into exile, and because Judah has now left all by itself, it continues to fall further and further in idolatry and paganism. Around the time that Habakkuk comes on the scene, there's a king named Ammon that's in charge of the southern kingdom. Ammon is establishing pagan temples and pagan worship sites within the country of Judea. It has gone downhill. The beautiful temple that Solomon had built in his reign a monument to God's faithfulness to his people is in disrepair and dilapidated. Ammon dies, and upon his death, his eight-year-old son, Josiah, is placed on the throne. An eight-year-old. At the age of 18, Josiah commits his heart and his mind to God, and he means it. He begins to lead reforms within the country, the kingdom of Judah, that lead people back to God and away from idolatry. He commands that Solomon's temple begin to be renovated, to reconstruct it. And during that renovation, the high priest finds a scroll. And that scroll turns out to be the Torah, the first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They open it and they read it, Josiah and the high priest, and they weep openly as they read the Torah, because they know that they are woefully falling short of the standard of God. And so Josiah calls a convocation. He brings the entire kingdom of Judea in. He commands them to come, the entire country, and him and the high priest read the Torah, they read the scroll, and everybody is devastated. The law of God 
revealed to their hearts what it does to our hearts, that we have fallen woefully short of the standard of God. Josiah calls a Passover meal and then points people back into a restored relationship with God and mass repentance breaks out in the kingdom only to be described what we might know in this culture as revival begins to take place in Judea. And then, unfortunately, Josiah is killed in battle. You find this in 2 Kings. He leads his army against Egypt. King Nico, the Pharaoh Nico, kills Josiah on the site, and all of those reforms and all of that revival that Josiah was a part of through a series of successors that are his offspring become absolutely unraveled. And the paganism and the idolatry that was once before Josiah is back, and it's deeper and darker than it has ever been. And so this is where we find Habakkuk, and this is what his rant is about. If you could put yourselves into the heart and the mind of Habakkuk, you would see that you have a country that is full of adultery and paganism, and you spend your days praying that God would restore them back into a right relationship with him. Lord, bring your people back to him, only to see God answer that prayer through a guy named Josiah, who leads reforms. They're on the cusp of revival. And then you see it all unravel again in front of your eyes. And the kingdom that you love falls deeper and deeper into paganism and adultery. That is what Habakkuk sees. And this is why I think the book of Habakkuk is so important and so good for us to see. Every one of us in our path towards Christian maturity are going to hit a spot in our lives where we feel shaken, perplexed, pressed down and hurt, we all will experience those really tough bumps in the road. And this is why this book is important. Habakkuk is absolutely open and honest to God. He's saying, are you listening to me? Are you going to do anything about this? Are you just going to sit there and do nothing, Lord? Do you even hear a word that I'm saying? And if we're honest, we've all been there. And if we haven't, we will eventually get there in our lives. And Habakkuk's example is there to point us to the fact that we need an open, honest, and personal relationship with God about what's going on in our lives and the things that we're walking through. A, proper, a, a, a lack of honesty, a lack of openness in our relationships with God creates all sorts of problems that rob us in our faith. They become obstacles for us in our walk with God. We have to understand God is not some distant, disinterested person in our shortcomings, our concerns, and our fears, but a God who is very much responsive to our emotions, concerns, and frustrations. And so inside of a relationship with God that isn't honest, that isn't open, things begin to be corrupted. And we're going to talk about a few things that are corrupted in a relationship with God that isn't open, honest, and personal. Not bringing honesty into a relationship with God corrupts our worship. Now, when you hear the word worship, you might just assume the songs that we sing here on a Sunday, but that's not worship fully. Worship is a feeling of adoration, a feeling of reverence towards the Lord. That means that you can worship God literally anywhere that you show love and respect and reverence and adoration to God. It's not limited to just your singing sessions, which, men, that's a very good thing for us, right? Uh, When I was a... uh, 
youth pastor, I was at a youth conference, and I had a high school kid turn towards me, and he said, man, I just love the way you worship. I thought, man, that was, that was so nice of you to say that. Which he resp- responded to, uh, I mean, it sounds horrible, uh, like a bunch of injured cats, but I love the way you worship. I have no idea how I was supposed to take that. Uh, I'm just one glad, well, I'm for one and glad that, that my singing is not what limits my worship. I'm glad that I can worship God freely in my lifestyle. And so because worship is so much about adoration and reverence, our openness and, and honesty with God is so important. Have, have you ever revered somebody that you couldn't be honest with? No. Have you ever adored somebody that you couldn't be open with? It's impossible. Uh, worship is so much about understanding your position to God. Have you ever been somewhere where, where you have been overwhelmed with the size and the vastness of what you've seen? Like if you go to the Grand Canyon or the ocean, are you not just struck by the size and the grandeur and the vastness of what you're seeing? You become absolutely silent in front of those things because of its size. And your silence is there because you're overwhelmed with it all. And in that moment, when you're in, something, in front of something that is that beautiful and that large, in that moment, you're reminded of your place in the universe. In that moment, you're reminded that you're not all-powerful. In that moment, you're reminded that you're not all-conquering. In that moment, you become aware. And a proper place for worship doesn't come with us just recognizing that God is big and vast and huge but it comes through an open and honest relationship with him that comes to the understanding that he is big and vast and good and he could crush me if he wanted to. But he doesn't. He withholds his wrath and he's patient and he's loving and it's kind. And that place is only developed out of an open and honest and personal relationship with the Father, one of the Father knowing you and you knowing the Father. The second thing that not bringing honesty into our faith, into our relationship with God corrupts is our growth. No relationship can grow if it is not willing to be honest with each other. No relationship will ever grow if it's not willing to be honest with each other. When we are not open and honest with our feelings, with our concerns, with our praises, with our gratitude, it stifles that relationship's ability to grow. As a staff, we have developed a few key expectations that we have for each other uh, in this church. We have seven of them. The first two, I think we have, the first two up there are to just let us understand the value of open, openness and honesty in a relationship. Our first two values are we use our speech to lift and edify each other. And the second is we have a problem. If we have a problem with somebody on staff, you deal with it with them directly. If not, you need to go, if you need to process it, talk to Craig. Craig's the wise guy. These are here so that we have open and honest relationships with our staff and inside of our staff culture because we don't believe as a church we can move much of anywhere if we don't practice as a staff what we preach and teach as a church. And so we start with those things. A relationship with God that doesn't have open and honest communication has the very high potential to create distance and resentment, which leads to us just pretending that we have a relationship. Ah, I like this person. It leads to us masking our concerns and our feelings. Simply put, if somebody doesn't know what's going on with you, how are they ever going to help you move past it for that relationship to grow? And you may think that, well, God knows my heart, right? 
God knows my heart. I shouldn't have to communicate those things to him. Well, you're absolutely correct to say that God knows your heart, but you're incorrect to assume that God does not want you to verbalize and speak to him the desires and the concerns and the anguish of your heart. We see it in this man, Habakkuk, not just in Habakkuk, but we see it countless times in the Old Testament. There's a man named Moses, a patriarch of our faith, and there are numerous times that Moses speaks towards God in a way that is challenging, a way that is opening up of his heart. There's an instance in Exodus where God is so upset with the Israelites because right after he rescues them out of slavery in Egypt, they build a statue of a golden calf that they worship as their God. And Moses, talking with God directly, God says, I am angry with these people. My fury burns bright against them, and I will destroy them. And listen to the way that Moses responds to God. This is in Exodus 32, verses 11 through 14. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I promised I will give to your offspring and, it, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Moses is absolutely questioning God here. But he is reverent and he is respectful and he's laying out his concerns and his desires, his anguish in his heart, and God relents. Does that mean that Moses made God change his mind? Maybe. But it absolutely shows a value that is present of honesty and openness in a relationship with God. Moses and Habakkuk are men with deep and profound relationships with God that absolutely have no qualms about speaking to God about all that's going on in their lives. And if we're not willing to be open and honest with what's going on in our lives, simply put, how is God ever going to help us move past those things in our lives? And the last thing that not bringing honesty into our relationship with God corrupts is our intimacy. No deep or sustaining relationship has ever been grounded in surface-level affection. Never has been grounded in surface-level affection. It just does not happen. It's not true of any of your relationships, and it's not true of your relationship with God. Exposing our hearts Exposing our desires, exposing our concerns, exposing our displeasures and our gratitudes to the fathers brings a depth and a closeness to him that being stoic and distant to him does not. It creates intimacy. Your lack of honesty and openness does not. And so I just want to dig at a deeper root here. Just listen to me here if you can. I think a lack of honesty and openness in your relationship with God creates a shallow faith, a surface-level faith. And that faith is an absolute byproduct of an American Christian experience. Within this culture, Christianity has held, been held not just as a belief, 
but almost as an expectation that because your mama and your daddy are a Christian, because your family is, you should say that you are a Christian. And because of that, we have had generations upon generations of people who have grown up knowing the attributes of God without ever really embracing God's intentions for those attributes in our lives. We have generations of people who know the name of Jesus Christ and know that he is the Son of God without having the time nor the desire to embrace what that actually means for mankind. And now, as our culture begins to reject the institutionalized religion of Christianity that far too often has been sold to them like Tupperware, like, love God, put him in your life because it's going to make everything better. Because they're rejecting that, we are shocked and we're appalled, we're angry, and if we're honest, we're scared. But do you know why Christianity is in decline in America? It's not because of your government. It's because as this culture grew, and as the expectation to be a Christian grew, because that's what you do, we have massive amounts of people who lacked honesty and openness in the relationship with God, that led them to play a lifestyle of pretend faith. And then they sold that pretend version of Christianity as a product, a version of Christianity that has no cost to it, no buy-in, no strings attached, just benefit for me. And for years, our culture ate this up because we're front runners. We want to be accepted, we want to be liked, we want to be known, nobody wants to be outcast. And now that our culture has had it with pretend Christians, leveraging their pretend faith as judgment on them, we're appalled. So hear me, I for one am glad that the American version of Christianity is dying. Glad. It has deceived the souls of many. And the unfortunate reality amongst Christians is that there are more Christians who would be offended that I spoke anything against America than if I ever spoke out against the deity of Christ. And that's sad. As a follower of Christ, it, I believe that it will be for our betterment. I don't know where this road takes us, but I'm not afraid of it because we serve a big God. People don't have time for things that aren't authentic and real in their lives anymore. Why do you think there's a craze over grass-fed organic stuff in our culture? People want the real thing. They're tired of watered-down, polluted versions, and that is absolutely what a faith that lacks honesty and openness and personal is. It's pretend. Nobody is willing to accept your relationship with your in-laws that you may pretend as the reality of the relationship with Christ. And so because we're talking about honesty, I'm not afraid to be honest. I don't take joy of speaking hard things. It would be much easier for me to come up here and stroke everybody's ego, say God loves you, God's for you, now go do whatever you want. That would be easy. But because we love you, we are willing to say hard things. We do not want to see anybody perish because of an assumption. I am the shepherd of this flock. And I take that seriously. And you may see some 35-year-old fool up here that maybe needs a lesson in theology and reality. But I can't see what I see in this culture and read what I read in the pages of Scripture and not seem like a fool to some. 
And so I'm okay with that. So it's time that we push ourselves to get open in our relationships with God. It's time that we push ourselves to be honest because when we refuse to be open and honest in a relationship with God, it pushes us towards a pretend faith and corrupts so much that is integral to our faith. It corrupts our worship, it corrupts our intimacy, it corrupts our growth. Honesty is a way of life, it's not just an action. Keeping it paramount in your relationship with God will create huge opportunities to grow your worship, to increase your intimacy with God, to increase your growth with Him. Bringing openness and honesty in your relationships keeps resentment away and an ability to want to have a surface-level faith. Knowing that you can totally trust God with all of your stuff, with all of your concern, with all of your anguish, brings a freedom and comfort that is absolutely the best way possible in your relationship with God. And you need not look any further than the example of Habakkuk. I'm excited about what this book brings to us. I'm excited about the things that Habakkuk teaches us about what a personal relationship with the Lord looks like. Now, Habakkuk gets his answers later, and they're not necessarily the answers that we would hope that they might be, but they are true to who God is, and Habakkuk leaves with his trust restored in the Lord. And so I'm looking forward to these next few weeks speaking about the intricacies and the examples that we see in Habakkuk in a personal relationship with God. But the thing that starts it all is bringing openness and honesty into our relationships with God so that we can stop pretending. We want the real thing. People want authentic, not pretend. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we just ask that you would create in our hearts an honest dialogue where we would not have any reservations or concerns about sharing what is going on in our hearts and our lives because we believe that you are big enough and strong enough to handle all of our stuff. You are not scared of our grievances. You are not scared of our concerns. You're not scared of our anger. And so God, make that the reality of our lives, that we bring dialogue, we present our hearts to you, Lord, in a way that you validate and grow our relationship with you. Let us not be scared to talk to you in the way that Habakkuk and Moses talked to you. But let us through the confessions of our heart, Lord, grow closer to you as you move those obstacles out of our life through your spirit, through your love, through your grace, and through your mercy. We love you, Lord, and we praise you for who you are. But mostly we thank you for your son, Jesus, who has done for us what we could not. Amen.